us go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, nothing is more important than the truth we're about to behold together. Clear away distraction and distortion. Open our eyes and our ears. Speak to us in power and grant that each of us hears and marvels at Christ, His wonderful truth, the wonderful truth of Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Pick out two verses we just read, verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is this little context, little, con, little complex of events, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, why is that of first importance? We're going to see what Christ's resurrection brings us. These events are the pivot point of God's eternal plan. That's why they're of first importance. God has a great plan of redemption made in eternity past by which he will redeem a people for himself and set right the universe, all of which has been ruined by sin. And that great eternal plan hinges on Christ and particularly on this little complex of events. So I'd like you to think of Christ's burial, uh, sorry, death, burial, and resurrection as connected and think of them as the tip of an iceberg. Now, the tip of an iceberg itself might be a massive, large thing. But do you know that as little as an eighth of the iceberg is seen above the surface? Meaning seven-eighths of the iceberg are beneath the surface. And so, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you were just a, a casual, detached uh, observer... Fairly simple, you wouldn't even need any CGI, you know? You wouldn't even need special effects. Here's a man dying on the cross. It's horrible, it's gruesome, it's gut-wrenching, but it's happened a lot. It's a fairly simple event. And then that man is taken and he's wrapped up and he's laid in a tomb. Again, fairly common event. And then if you even were simply standing by Sunday morning, now here's where you might need some CGI. You've got glowing angels descending, the stone is rolled away, but then a guy walks out of the tomb. Now, a guy walking is not a big deal. A guy walking out of a tomb <laughs> is a big deal <laughs> if he's the same guy who'd been laid in the tomb days before. And that's the case here. And yet to see it, it's a simple event. But I'm telling you, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Most of it is beneath the surface, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I want to show you what the resurrection brings every one of you. Now, if you say, wait a minute, not me, I'm not a Christian. No, no. Every one of you, every person in this room, I want to show you what the resurrection brings all of us. Stay with me, and I will show you. Now, I can't do everything in one sermon, so my starting place is going to be that the resurrection happened. We talked about that more in the earlier service, but we're just going to start with that as a fact of history. Even as a Christ-hating, foul-mouthed 17-year-old, I knew Jesus rose from the dead. 
I mean, honestly, I do believe that if we, if we don't grant that, then we just don't know anything about history at all. Because no other event in history has better attestation than the resurrection of Jesus. I remember following a, into my hands the book, The Passover Plot. Some of you may remember that. Hugh Schoenfeld, it was a big deal in the 70s, where a fellow made the idea that, that Jesus had planned his own death, except he planned not to die. He planned to be given a drug and then swoon and then revive in the tomb and come fake a resurrection, but it all went wrong when the soldier put the spear in his side. And even as a foul-mouthed, Christ-hating 17-year-older, I read that and I went, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Seriously? So we're going to start with the assumption that the resurrection happened. We're going to talk about what it means. And I'm going to, to tell you, first of all, that it brings every one of us reasons. It's Roman numeral one. It brings us reasons. And reasons for what? Well, specifically, it brings us generally, it brings us reasons to believe, letter A. Reasons to believe. Now, um, every time I see uh, uh, a statement that some movie or project is faith-based, I immediately think to myself, well, actually, everything is faith-based. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, absolutely everything is faith-based. Everything we do, we're, we're trusting something. We're trusting someone. We're trusting, right now I'm trusting whoever it was built this stage. Uh, and I'm, I'm trusting God to hold the molecules of it together. Though I may not consciously be thinking about those things. When you get in your car, when you drive on the street, everything we do, we're surrounded by trust. The big question I've got is what's the basis for the trust on which we're living our lives? What, what is the authority? What's the basis? On what grounds do we think that we know what we know about life? Now, everything that ultimately originates in man has no basis. It's all groundless. Now, I, I want to show you that. Everything that originates with man is words, it's talks, and more and more, it's just feelings. It's just what feels right to me or feels wrong to me. And there's not necessarily any analytical thought involved whatsoever. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you see that? More emoting than analyzing or reflecting. But even you say, oh, no, no, science is proven. Well, is it now? Now, I, I want to run a little test in my own mind, see if I guess this one right. I want to see how you react when I say this phrase. The science is settled. I thought I'd hear chuckles. <laughs> now, think about where we are that the phrase, the science is settled, produces chuckles because we have learned that science can be manipulated, that science is controlled by other interests, financial interests, social interests, political interests. And even if you were talking about the, the most rigorous objective science, this is something that they've run a thousand experiments on this. Do you know that the thousand and first wouldn't invalidate all of them? Well, you don't know that, you just trust it. And we trust what the scientists tell us at a certain point. We trust what philosophers tell us. But the thing we have to face is that all of it might be wrong. Now, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, I, there's things I know absolutely. You can't tell me that I don't know some things absolutely on my own authority. Fine, let me just ask you a question. Is it possible that there is some fact on the backside of the moon that proves that everything you think you know is a lie? Well, now, that's more an honesty test, isn't it? Because if you're honest, you have to say no, because we don't know what's on the backside of the moon. But I could say, do you know that there's not a fact across the street that doesn't disprove everything you think you know? We have to say no, because we haven't been there. 
And if we'd even looked over the surface of the backside of the moon, then I'd ask, how do you know that six inches down? <laughs> There's not a fact. Well, what I'm trying to get at is if we are our grounds of authority, imagine the, the array of things that can be known, and then ask yourself, what percentage of those things has all of humanity learned at this point? And the answer has to be, well, do you think 10%? How about five? How about one? How about an unimaginably small number that basically amounts to zero? See, I think that's more like it. And yet this is the basis we live on. And we're going to die one day. That's a certainty for us. And we don't know anything about what happens after that, but we just live like it doesn't matter. And I dare say there's, there's a whole lot more time on the other side of the grave than on this side, amen? I mean, that's just math. <laughs> that's just math. That's math I know anyway. Uh, and so everything from man is ultimately ground, groundless. But what I want to say to you is everything that the resurrection brings us is ultimately grounded. Why? Because what did I say at the start? I said everything that originates with man is groundless. But what is the resurrection? Does that originate with man? It does not. Now, we all know what universal human experience is about a corpse going into a grave. When a corpse goes into the grave, the only way it's coming out is by something else acting on it. But it doesn't come out alive. Certainly not if it's gone in on Friday and laid there through Saturday and through Saturday night to Sunday morning. It does, it's not going to walk out of that. So the resurrection is an event that doesn't come up through human philosophy or human religion or human science it is another world breaking through into ours. It is, maybe a way I can put it, is an iceberg thrusting through the surface. And most of what's there to it is underneath the surface. But what we see signals the whole mass. So the resurrection is an event of God breaking through from above, from without, with all of the authority of God. And so what I want to say to you is... Everything we learn from it, unlike human knowledge, is absolutely grounded and absolutely based. What do I mean? Well, let's ask my test question. If God makes a statement, is there a chance that there might be a fact on the dark side of the moon that contradicts everything God said? No. You know why? He's seen the backside of the moon. Wait, even more. He made the backside of the moon. He made it six inches down, six feet down, six miles down. In fact, everything that exists started in the mind of God and exists because of the mouth of God. The word of God spoke everything into existence. So when God says something, unlike every thought that man comes up with, and even every assured result of science comes from absolute wisdom, absolute knowledge, and absolutely incorruptible Money doesn't mean anything to him. Politics doesn't mean anything to him in the sense of swaying him in his conclusions. So the resurrection was announced by God's words hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. It was announced by the Lord Jesus several times through his own earthly ministry. And now we have words telling us what it means. All of this is not the result of human reflection. All of this is the, the sign, it's the, the vision, it's the fact of God breaking through into our world with his reality. And so as a result, that, that tip of the iceberg we see beckons us 
to a faith unlike any other, it beckons us to a faith that is ultimately grounded. And it, unlike man's thoughts, does not rest in midair with nothing under it, but it rests on the eternal, unmoving foundation of God and His wisdom. That iceberg of the resurrection brings to us that. It brings to us reasons to believe. Believe in a way that is grounded, that's based. Specifically, letter B, it gives us reasons to believe that Jesus is God incarnate. If that's not a word you write often. God incarnate. I-N-C-A-R-N-A-T-E. And what does incarnate mean? It simply means in flesh, literally. It means God in human form. If you were ever to say, I wonder what God would be like if he were a man, I would reply, I know exactly what God would be like if he were a man, because it happened one time. It happened in the birth of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and this demonstrates who he was. This demonstrates his nature as God incarnate. Let me read to you Romans 1.4. Paul is speaking of the gospel of God concerning his son, the gospel about Jesus, and he says, who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And you must understand when, when Paul says Son of God, he doesn't mean less than God. He means equal in deity to God. If fully God as God the Father is God. He is God the Son. And His resurrection confirms that. And that's not too hard to understand. Jesus had made a number of massive claims The sorts of claims that if you make them, you're either absolutely insane, you're absolutely demon-possessed, or you're God incarnate. And all an actual God would have to do to make nonsense out of all of Jesus' claims, because one of his claims was that he would lay his life down, and then he would what? Take it up again. That they would tear down the temple of his body, John chapter 2, and he would do what? Raise it up on the third day. That was one of his claims. So what would, if Jesus were a a phony, if the real God wanted to show that he was a phony, what would he have had to do once Jesus was laid in the grave? Absolutely nothing. Just let nature take its course and everything Jesus had said would collapse. And yet, when Jesus walked out of that tomb on the third day, everything he said was verified, was, was affirmed, was seen to be true as it was already known to be true. Of course it happened because he is who he says he is. So the scriptures explain the meaning of his resurrection as meaning. And those same scriptures that tell us that tell us about Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is who Jesus is. He's the Word. In fact, John 1.14 says, and the Word, that same Word that was in the beginning and was God and was with God, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and of truth. So the resurrection shows us the truth of those assertions and those claims about Jesus. It demonstrates that. Now, this puts Jesus apart from all human teaching. You just need to to gear your mind to think this. Every time you hear one of these great philosophers or thinkers or religionists uh, uh, waxing eloquent and, and gassing on and on with his thoughts and ideas, you need just to ask yourself, what is that besides words? 
What, what is there to that other than just words, words, words? And the answer is there's nothing. It's just words. But if you ask that about what Jesus said, then what's the answer? Reality. Demonstration. Resurrection, for instance. Something that could not be done by a phony. So everything Jesus is, everything he says, everything he does is infinitely based and grounded because what Jesus says and does and is, is what God says and does and is. Because Jesus, being God incarnate, perfectly reflects God the Lord, God the Creator. And so once again, unlike all of human knowledge, everything Jesus says is infinitely based. It's infinitely grounded. It is absolute truth. So we go through every day resting our entire lives on things that we just can't even demonstrate. We can't even show to be true. And yet here are words of Jesus which are absolutely demonstrated to be absolutely true. Which are absolutely grounded. So we can fully lean our weight on Jesus without reservation, without fear, in absolute confidence. So you see the resurrection brings us reasons specifically to believe that Jesus is God. And the resurrection brings us reasons specifically to believe that Jesus is Lord. Why? Well, first of all, because Jesus says so. Now, all of this builds. You see, all of this builds on what we've seen. We build more. So we've established who Jesus is. We've established he's God incarnate. Why is he Lord? Because he, God incarnate, says he's Lord. John 13, 13, he says to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. (laughs) He confesses that he is indeed Lord, and he is indeed teacher. Seems like a small thing, but teacher has a great meaning in what we're thinking about now. Meaning when he tells us about life and meaning, he tells us about right and wrong and, and wisdom and folly, He's not speaking of his reflections in the backside of the desert on a a quiet night. He's speaking the eternal words of God. This is God speaking through a human mouth. The mouth of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus. And saying he's teacher and saying he's Lord. Lord, master, one endued with, with authority. Now, this is an authority that was not delegated by people. This is an authority that was not reached as a result of a poll or by a celebrity panel or on, you know, uh, the world has talent or whatever. Uh, This is authority given him by God. This is authority that is his by right, by nature of who he is. And the resurrection demonstrates his lordship. Uh, John 20, 28 and 29, Thomas, his friend, Friends have seen Jesus and he didn't. And you remember Thomas famously says, well, unless I see the marks in his hands and in his side, I, I won't believe. And so Jesus appears in the ultimate calling of a bluff and says, bring your finger over here. And so when he sees the risen Jesus, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Here's where anyone else would say, oh, you shouldn't call me those things. But not Jesus. Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So he pronounced blessed the faith that he is God and that he is Lord. But notice he also says, Thomas should have already believed that before he saw him. His resurrection was not the the ultimate proof. The word of God was. 
But now he sees him and sees that he's Lord and God. Why? What does the resurrection have to do with his lordship? Well, of course, God the Son was always Lord, but the human incarnate God was given this status through his death and resurrection. Ephesians 1 talks about that. Paul in Ephesians 1 verses 20 and following talks about God's power which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Every senator, every congressman, every governor, every president, every king, every queen, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This was God the Father's act as a consequence of Jesus' crucifixion and in his resurrection. God raised him up from the dead, but it didn't stop there. He stayed on earth for some time teaching and preparing his apostles. But at the end of that time, they saw him ascend bodily up into the heaven out of sight. And where did he go? Paul tells us he went to the right hand of God the Father. At the steering wheel of the universe is a man. That man is Jesus Christ resurrected and invested with this power as a a consequence of his becoming obedient to the death of the cross. In fact, that's what Paul goes on to talk about in Philippians 2. Being a found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, my, that's a... A word freighted with meaning. Therefore, because Jesus obeyed to this nth degree of humiliation and submission, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you're beginning to see perhaps why I said the resurrection brings something to every one of us, depending on what we think, of it, irrespective of what we call ourselves, Christian, atheist, agnostic, whatever. This is reality. Every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord, because that is simply objective truth. And he will succeed. He will conquer. So it's a matter of whether I confess it now to my soul's salvation or confess it then when it's too late. But it's a reality. So this is the meaning to us. In Jesus, all of God's world is brought to bear on all of our world. In that iceberg, that little peek through of the resurrection, we see the peek through of the kingdom of God breaking through into our plane and showing us the reality of God. And so in Jesus himself, we have transcendent, absolute right and authority. One who has every right to have all authority. Others may have a delegated temporary right, and it can be taken away from them. But Jesus has eternal right, and it will never be taken away from him. And the resurrection demonstrates that. The resurrection is a peak of that reality. So for us to ignore Jesus' authority in how we think and live, well, it's actually morally wrong, as well as intellectually wrong, as well as spiritually wrong, and it's ultimately self-defeating. And we see in the world what happens when we try to be our own gods. More and more madness, more and more insanity, more and more unhingedness. Jesus is the anchor we need. Uh, He is Lord of all. 
and the resurrection is the beginning of the invasion. We need to take the lesson from that. Now, uh, Jesus uh, brings us reasons generally to believe, specifically to believe that he is Lord and God. Second, Roman numeral two, Jesus' resurrection also brings us answers. Jesus' resurrection brings us answers to the uh, existentially biggest questions, the biggest questions that have a bearing on our lives. First of all, an answer to the question, how can I know truth? As I say, building on what we've seen already in this talk, building on that, fundamentally truth is a person. Truth is the person who is resurrected. We see in John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I show the way, I teach the truth, I point the way to life. Is that how you remember it? What does he say? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Truth, meaning, life are found in the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is that person. And that person teaches truth and tells us to abide and that that's the only way we can know truth. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, there, notice the succession there. The first mark of discipleship is continuing in his word. Why? Because only there do we learn the words of eternal, absolute truth. Only there do we learn the words of God. So we must continue in his word, and only by doing that do we know the truth. And only then can we be set free. Set, be, set free from what? From all the lies and deceptions of the world and of the wicked one and of our own fallen nature from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, only through continuing in Jesus' word. What's the reason for that? Because the person who is the truth is God incarnate. Because as we've seen, all human knowledge is finite, it's all flawed, it's all corrupt, it's all fallible, but all of Jesus' knowledge, and therefore all of his teaching, is infallible. It's flawless. It's infinite in its ground, in its wisdom. Only in Jesus do we find this. And so the difference it makes to my life is I can know truth. It's not a pointless search unless I look anywhere except Jesus. If I do look anywhere other than Jesus, then it is a pointless search. It's a self-defeating search. It will lead only to despair or delusion. One or the other, perhaps both. Despair delusion. The only way to know truth is to find it in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ will we find grounded truth, eternal truth. I learn this truth and I know this truth when I know Jesus. I come to possess this truth only when I have a relationship with Jesus on his terms as my Lord and my God. But I can know it. And the resurrection points me to that reality because that truth is that person who died, was buried and rose from the grave. So it answers the question. The resurrection points me to the answer to the question, how can I know truth? I know truth in Jesus. It also points me uh, to the answer to the question, how can I know God? How can I know God? Well, fundamentally, once again, the answer is, I know God through Jesus. Why? Because in Jesus, God became a human and revealed himself. Uh, John 14, verses 6 through 9. Again, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, you've often heard it said there are many ways to God. Well, that's absolutely true. Every religion and every philosophy will lead you to God. But there's only one way to God as Father, and that's through Jesus. Every other way leads us to God as judge, jury, and executioner. Because we'll always end up with God. There's no getting around that. The only way to know Him is our Father. Our sins forgiven at peace with God is through Jesus. So Jesus says, so says the one who was raised from the dead. And He goes on to say, if you've come to know Me, you will know My Father also. From now on, you know Him and you've seen Him. Philip, my man, says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all so long and have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So you see, according to the words of this person we've been talking about, to meet him is to meet God. Or to flip it backwards, if I want to meet God, I need to meet him. He is where I meet God the Father. What's the reason for that? Well, because Jesus alone is God incarnate. There is only one God. He's one as to his essence, but he's three as to his persons. The Bible reveals that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all distinct, all co-equal as to their essence and glory. God the Son was sent into human society, took on a human nature, born of the Virgin Mary, that he might fulfill all righteousness, that he might die as a sacrifice for our sins. So in Jesus, God came into our family, into our race, in this one person. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And who is that? Is that the Virgin Mary? No, it's not. Is it the prophet Joseph Smith? No, it's not. Is it a constellation of saints? No, it's not. The one mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as the one and only ransom for all mankind. There is no other ransom than the ransom Jesus made. So in Jesus, deity and humanity meet in one person, two natures. His humanity is a perfect, he's not half God, half man. He's fully human as to his humanity, and he's fully God as to his deity. And you say, I don't know how you do that. And I say, well, the day you need to do it, I'll explain it to you. But of course, it is only done once and it will never be done again. It's only in the person of Jesus that deity and humanity are perfectly united. Two natures in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. So, let me say it again. In Jesus, deity and humanity meet. Therefore, in Jesus, man and God meet. This is where we meet God unless we meet him as judge. We meet him in Jesus. So what difference does this make to our lives? Well, it makes all the difference. For one thing, it is the only way I can have a relationship with God on his terms. Let me say that again. It is the only way I can have a relationship with God on his terms. Now, maybe you've heard the expression that you need to believe in a higher power, whatever you conceive it to be. Well, if it's what you conceive it to be, then whose terms is it on? And I'd like to know, what is your resume? What, what, what shows that you have the ability to dictate terms as to how to know God? 
Now, it's not an empty question I ask you. This is the same thing that brought my house of cards collapsing in 1973. I had a relationship with God as I conceived him. <laughs> I was convinced of it. And yet God showed me more and more the, the horrors and the corruption and the madness and misery in my own heart. And I one day realized, wait a minute, <laughs> if that's who I am and I've made my own relationship with God, I don't have a relationship with God. I have a relationship with my idea of God. And that just hit me desperately. And I began crying out to God to show me how to have a relationship with Him on His terms, not on my terms. And God graciously led me to see this is the one and only way to have a relationship with Him on His terms. Because He took the initiative and took on human nature. He lived among us. He spoke. He showed the way. He made the way open by His work on the cross. The only way to have a relationship with God that isn't wish fulfillment and that isn't just projection, that is actually a relationship with God, is through Jesus Christ, according to the Word of God. This is the way to have a relationship with God on His terms that is real through and because of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It also brings answers to the questions, how can I have peace with God? The question, how can I have peace with God? How can I know truth? How can I know God? How can I have peace with God? Well, the answer is that I, I absolutely can have peace with God, and I can know it for absolute certainty because that was the whole point of the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection. This is how God saved His people. This is how God saved His elect. Through the crucifixion, the burial... Well, through the crucifixion of Christ, followed by the burial and the resurrection of Christ. How can I have peace with God? Through Jesus. Through the one who died for sinners, was buried, through the one who rose on the third day. That's the tip of the iceberg, but below the surface is the fact that sinners can be saved. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was His mission, and He accomplished it. So what is the reason why I can have peace with God through Christ? The answer is I can have peace with God through this resurrected Jesus Christ. How can I have peace with God through Christ? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I would love to talk with you on and on about that, but very briefly, Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption. In who? In who? In Christ. Paul says, in Christ then, we have redemption through His blood. What's redemption? It's being bought out of slavery. We're all slaves to sin. The power and guilt of sin. What can free me? Trying harder? Philosophy? A 40-day diet? No. We have redemption in Christ through His blood. His blood is His shedding of His life in the place of guilty sinners. His infinitely righteous and perfect life as a substitute for guilty, wicked sinners. Redemption through His blood. And what does that redemption bring me? Paul says, the forgiveness of our transgressions. In our heart, we all know we've sinned. All of us know we have fallen short of the glory of God. We all know we've violated His laws. And if you say, I don't even know His laws, well, then all the more do you know you're a violator of His laws. You haven't even learned them. There's a violation right there. But His blood brings us the forgiveness of, his trans, of our transgressions to according to the riches of His grace. And the resurrection comes in, Romans 4.25, 
where Paul says, Jesus was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. So the salvation was accomplished on the cross, not by the resurrection, but the resurrection shows that God fully accepted Christ's sacrifice. And now Christ, never to die again, never to, do, to, to die with reference to sin again, walks out of the tomb alive forever, holding the keys of death and hell. And so the resurrection shows us that God will justify all who believe in Him, will declare righteous all who simply believe in Jesus. And so the next chapter, Romans 5.1, the question is, how can I have peace with God? Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, this plan was the plan of God the Father who sent God the Son. It was executed by God the Son who gave His life on the cross for wicked sinners to make full atonement for them. He did everything. We add nothing to it. In fact, included in it is everything it takes to save those for whom He died. Romans 8 says that. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all How will he not with him freely give us all things? So if Jesus died for us, God will do everything in our hearts that it takes to bring us to repentance and salvation. Or just simply as Paul says it, faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ having been justified by faith. And faith is simply looking to Jesus, understanding who he is, believing that he is who he says he is, and then resting my full weight on him, trusting him, calling out to him, looking to him, giving him my life, trusting him as my Lord and my God. That's what it is, justified, declared righteous through faith. And then I can have assurance that my sins are forgiven. And and what difference does that make? Again, it makes all the difference in the world. I I dare say that a lot of what we call mental illness has at its core guilt that people don't know what to do with. They, they know that their lives are pointless. They know they've done wickedly or foolishly with their lives, and they don't know how to make it right. And they go in 50 different directions that are self-destructive. But this is the way to go, because by this we can know forgiveness. We can have our sins truly and completely forgiven, but only through Jesus Christ. I don't need to rationalize my sins away. I don't need to blame someone else for my sins, some, some other uh, caste or, or race or person or power or anything for my sins. I can take full accountability for them and come to God and be forgiven for them because of what Jesus has done and because of who He is. So I don't need to tell myself fictions. I don't need to tell myself stories. I just need this one story, this true story the story about who Jesus is and what he came and did for sinners. So I can have a grounded and assured relationship with God on his terms. Thirdly then, and finally, Christ's resurrection brings you hope. It brings reasons, it brings answers, it brings hope. So a question one might ask is, does my life matter? The resurrection brings the answer to that question, does my life matter? Um, among the many places we go, I went to Romans 14, 8 through 12. We're speaking now to believers. Paul says, for if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, in other words, rose from the grave, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. And then in verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Does my life matter? Yes, it does. Why? Because I matter to my family. No, that's not, that's not the ultimate reason. If you don't have a family, then do you matter? Well, because I matter to myself. Really? Are you the end of all existence? Well, because I matter to the state. Okay, do you want to really have the state define your value? Well, then what is it? It's because we live before God. Because our lives are lived in the sight of God. And because God sees and judges us every hour of every day. And we either live our lives for His glory on His terms, or we don't. But we will answer for our lives to Him. Our reason is a vertical reason, not a horizontal reason. Every thought will be reviewed and judged by God, not in the court of man's opinion, but in the throne of God before a resurrected Jesus, you see. And so the meaning of my life is service to the risen Lord. That's where my life finds meaning. And that's what the resurrection tells us. That's what it calls us to. This is the world where we'll find meaning. This is the world where our life will find meaning. Small person, big person, totally unknown, well-known, doesn't matter. It's before the eyes of God that our life must be lived, is being lived. And we're happiest if we learn what it means to live in the sight of God. The resurrection shows us that way because it points us to Jesus in whom alone we can know God and live on God's terms. So does my life matter? Yes, it does. We will be standing before God to stand and review. And then finally, what happens to me next? What happens to me next? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> what happens to me next? The resurrection tells me, though. Now, this is something I will never, ever get over as long as I live. How confidently people talk about what happens to people after they die with no basis whatsoever. Now, he's in a better place. How do you know that? How do you know that? I mean, this is where we started the sermon, isn't it? What's the basis? What's the ground for this? You've just stated something about which you have no empirical knowledge. You've never been there. You don't know anybody who's been there. But you know what happens? How do you know what happens? And of course, the answer is, oh, we don't. We just know what we'd like to think happens. Oh, that's a terrible bet to make. That's a terrible way to wager the millions and millions of years that lie on the other side of the grave. What a horrible way to approach the biggest issue confronting us. But the resurrection shows the reality of the matter. The resurrection shows the kingdom of God looming on the horizon and the judgment seat of God looming on the horizon. So I say it depends. Well, there is something that is true for every one of us. Hebrews 9.27. Here's what happens next. A beer commercial has it half right. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once. You only go around once in life. Yep. And after this comes judgment. That's the part the beer commercial leaves out. We go around once in life, and then we face the judgment of God. And if we go before God's judgment with a mixture of our righteousness and our works and human tradition and religion and uh, man-made dogmas, we have no hope. 
because that is not God's terms for knowing him. That is not God's terms. It's a spit in God's face. It's the Lord Jesus who said not to depend on human tradition, but to depend on the Word of God. So we, uh, we go uh, through life once, and then after this comes judgment. So if I've gone through life, and I die, and I haven't made peace with God through Christ on His terms, then what's going to happen to me? The Bible is very, very plain about it. Just one place, Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And he says this to people who boast of all sorts of religious works and acts and acts of devotion, but they never knew him, the resurrected one, who offers life and grace through faith alone, by God's grace alone, in him alone. So I pass out of this life without Christ, then I pass out of this life in my sins, in my guilt, in my insurrection against the deity of God, and I will be judged eternally for that. But for the believer, Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I will choose. But I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, Paul says this out of a life that was uh, rough in every way. He knew betrayal, he knew treachery, he knew physical uh, torment and mistreatment and abuse. And so that's why it was kind of a choice to him. (laughs) Do I want to go on with that or do I want to depart and be with Christ? Now, the one thing we have to see is that he says very clearly, departing and being with Christ is better. That is better. And he says very clearly that if he were to depart, I mean, there's no stopover. We either go right into the judgment of God or we go right into the presence of God according to the Bible. And so he's going to depart and be with Christ because he's trusted Christ. But still, he, did, he concludes that he's going to live because he's going to serve God and bear fruit. Because he knows this life is the only arena that we know of that we're going to be able to serve in wartime and serve the king and win trophies for him in wartime. And he, his determination, it's such a sad thing to see people who profess Christ and they think their lives are over. They just go into a, a passive, placid state waiting to die. But the truth is, if we're alive and we know Jesus, all of us, there's a reason, there's still work to do, there's still fruit to bear. We have a reason to live. The resurrection shows us that. The tip of the iceberg says that to us. This life is a gift from God. It's to be lived for God. So what happens to me next, being within the presence of Christ, gives me hope to give my all in this life to serve, to serve him, to bring fruit when I go to him. And so John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So he who was resurrected tells us he will resurrect us. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 <laughs> Knowing what Paul goes through, I can't read this without a chuckle, what he calls momentary light affliction. Being beaten with rods, being stoned, being jailed falsely, being chased out of towns, and on and on. Momentary light affliction, he says. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the meaning of this life. Live for Christ suffering for Christ, sacrificing for Christ, 
it won't end up a sacrifice at all, but a glory beyond all comparison. So you see this tip of the iceberg. You see a bit of what lies under the surface. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us reasons, every one of us, answers, every one of us, and hope, every one of us. This is true, whoever we are, whatever we've done with it. And our basis for knowing all this is not the corrupt, fleeting, finite guesswork of man. It is the massive truth from the infinite God who's revealed himself in Christ, who was raised from the dead. So, this is all true, but have I accepted the truth of it? If not, it does me no good. It stands in judgment over me. It's true to me, no matter what I do with it. And Jesus will be waiting at the end of my life, no matter what I've done with him. But do I respond by repentance and belief? Do I bow the knee before the Lord Jesus and believe? Does that truth begin making a difference in the way I live, the way I make my choices, the way I spend my time and think? Or does it just stay out there? The way that it becomes true to me, to my hope and joy, and to my peace of mind is through faith, through repentance, through bowing the knee to the risen Lord Jesus and trusting Him. Do you? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the resurrection of Christ and for all of the truth that it brings to us. We thank You, Father, for the Lord Jesus and for the wonder He is. Thank You that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank You that He is the resurrection and the life. My first earnest prayer would be for any person who walked in as I was, not knowing Christ, having a a made-up relationship with God. I pray that the Holy Spirit will mercifully and graciously topple those idols as He did for me, and that He will open those blind eyes as He did for me, and show that person the need instantly and earnestly, urgently to come running to Christ in repentant faith. And for all who know Him, Father, fill our hearts with joy and glory and, and, and give us an ardent, burning love for Jesus that leads us to live for Him, make sacrifices for Him, live like we believe what we say we believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.